Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Sean Salas, who is the CEO of Camino Financial, which is a fintech platform pioneering access to affordable credit to underbanked Latinx businesses. In this episode, we talk about how this got started during a summer at HBS, his journey. So Sean's journey from investment banking, private equity, to the point of starting a company with his twin brother, Kenny, and then how they grew the business, including getting their first loan out, raising funding. Eventually, they've raised $125 plus million in debt and equity, have built a team of over 50 employees. We go through all that in this episode. Lots of fun it was to talk to Sean, hear a few of his stories, and to building such an impactful company. And I'm so excited for you to listen to it. As always, the show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast. You can support the show by leaving a rating and review over an Apple podcast and the weekly grind with tips, tools, and strategies for growing a business can be found at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Without further ado, here is Sean Salas, the CEO of Camino Financial. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yes. And with Camino Financial, there's so much to discuss and you've done so much with it in the last number of years and raised a bunch of money to help people out with this. But I always love to go to the beginning. How did this get started in the first place? Well, I am the son of an entrepreneur, an immigrant entrepreneur that immigrated from Mexico to the United States in pursuit of the American dream. And I know that sounds cheesy, but (laughs) it really did happen. And entrepreneurship was really the only path for her to create real wealth for herself, her family, and her community. And she opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California called El Mexicano. Nice. So I grew up in in an entrepreneurial environment. I have entrepreneurship in my veins. Um, And with it, I also have the shock of entrepreneurship, which is (laughs) My mom, unfortunately, did lose her business, and it, it abruptly came to a close. And at that point in time, my twin brother and I were 12 years old, and my mom, of course, was devastated, thought the American dream was gone, and decided to move back to Mexico from L.A. and take her youngest two of six children with her, which, which are Kenny and myself. And so I grew up in Mazatlán, Sinaloa, uh, for a good chunk of my formative years, from 12 to 20 years old, it was at that point in time a character building moment for me. I knew that this would create my path both in life and career, and 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 I really did know. I mean, it was devastating. Uh, yet at the same time, you know, living and growing up in Mexico was a blessing in disguise. Uh, something that I think translates a lot into how I do business today yeah. and my affinity with my, my Mexican roots. Um, and then my, my twin brother and I, we, we kind of relived that immigrant story. It's interesting at, you know, we were, we, we graduated from high school. We too wanted to re pursue the American dream, a dream that we thought was gone. Yeah. Uh, we were lucky enough to get into UC Berkeley undergrad and undergrad and then cut our teeth in finance on Wall Street and investment banking and thereafter private equity. We chose a great year to start our careers in finance, 2008. Uh, (laughs) I was working at Lehman Brothers and I was investment banking for those that 
I, I, I don't know what the age demographic is for this show, but uh, Lehman Brothers didn't make it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> correct. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, we survived. And, and once again, another character building moment for us, something that I think definitely gives me the thick skin I need to manage through this crisis. And, um, and then, you know, in our private equity experience in particular, and I do speak in terms of we because my brother and I do do many things together in our careers. Um, we both work for two private equity funds that have a high focus on investing in um, black and brown communities. And it was a great experience uh, from an operational and finance perspective. And it was all equally eye-opening in terms of the limitations of private equity as an investment vehicle into black and brown communities. We were only investing in companies that made at least $7 million in cash flow per year. Whereas yeah. the average size of a Latino-owned business generates around $200,000 in revenue per year. So we're talking about <laughs> micro businesses. We're not talking about small businesses or small mid-cap private equity uh, eligible businesses. And so you know that was really an eye-opening experience for us. We clearly thought the entrepreneur in us were like, there has to be a better way, <laughs> of course. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that would effectively plant the seed of what would become Camino Financial. And we were very lucky to be able to incubate what would become Camino Financial while we were getting our MBAs at Harvard Business School. And we're going to go back to that and continue the story, but I, I want to just go back to real quick. How did you decide on going into kind of the investment banking private equity world out of undergrad? Well, I think that the way, and I got this really good advice early in my in my career or in, as a student and which would pave the path of my career, which is the first years coming out of college is a sprint. And the rate at which you run faster than your peers will determine how well you end up doing for the subsequent years in your professional career. And I really <laughs> do believe in that. And so in many ways, I saw investment banking as a boot camp to learn, to grow, and quite frankly, get my butt kicked quite a bit. <laughs> and, and, uh, and it really did do that. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful for the experience. Yes, the hours were crazy. I remember very well, the first week into investment banking, I told my mom, uh, I don't know if I can handle this. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't even my full-time experience in investment banking. It was my full-time Internship, <laughs> and I remember I'm like, I don't think I can handle this summer, let alone a <laughs> a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, and she's like, "Well, look," and I'm like, "Well, I'm working like 80, 100 hour weeks. I'm barely getting any sleep. I'm stressed." And she's like, "Mijo, my son," she's like, "I did that for twenty five years. You're telling me you did oh. that for three months, and that was it. That was it." I was like, "You know what? Message received." Last time I ever complained about working too hard to my mom and right. really solidifying the work ethic that I, I still have to this day. I still work very long hours. Obviously, I work in, a, in, in, a, in my business and 
that you know so the hours don't feel as long as they used to in investment banking yeah different when you own the company uh for sure it's a little bit different on that side of things and you're controlling uh your own destiny in some ways as well and that's such a great story to hear about the, the work ethic of your mom and you know it's basically her saying suck it up like you, you can make this work you can handle this i've done this for so many years and i'm sure that's been a big part of your career and with you and your twin brother kenny then deciding to go to business school, what made that decision happen? Because you're in private equity then, you had this entrepreneurship you know, flowing through your veins, but what made you go to business school? Then? Yeah, so I think there were three reasons why I decided to go to business school. And believe it or not, entrepreneurship or building a business was not amongst them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the, 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 the number one uh, reason was really I mean, it was always my dream to go to Harvard. I, I probably didn't tell that to everybody, but deep down inside, I always wanted to go to Harvard. Um, and and being able to associate myself with the brand and and get that experience was was very you know important to me personally. Um, Why was that? Just I, I think well, and 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 as you know, the 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 proof is in the pudding. Um, you know. The brand gives you access that you probably wouldn't get otherwise. Um, it gives sure. you credibility, probably sometimes more often than it should give you. Uh, <laughs> that that opens up opportunities. And by the way, I think as it relates to entrepreneurship and in life, everyone needs a crutch. Um, I'm not saying that going to Harvard is the only crutch that gets you ahead in life, but it was a crutch that I had envisioned for myself. Um, uh, the, the, the second reason why I wanted to go, uh, to get my MBA and specifically, once again, I, I was really fixated on going to HBS, um, was the people. Uh, I, I, I really knew that I was going to surround myself with people that are going to do great things in their life and I'm going to be able to learn from them and, and be friends uh, with them. And it's, it is truly an honor to be able to meet with different people. In fact, you know, while I was getting, uh, you know, my my MBA and we were starting Camino Financial, I can tell you that to my left was Wambi Rose uh, from Love Pop. I mean, they've raised a ton of money. Um, <laughs> and then there was like Michael Martin from Rapid SOS to my right, who's um, built this amazing, uh, uh, you know, uh, like, nine emergency response software that's integrated into like your into Siri um, and other many different Whoa. platforms. And he's doing incredibly well, has raised quite a bit of money. And so, and, and, and doing good in the world. And so the, the point that I'm trying to make here is that um, we I definitely, it definitely lived up to that part. And then the third thing, of course, is, you know, you learn a lot from your professors, from the curriculum, uh, something that I think will help frame my strategic thinking going forward. And and so that was, those were the three main reasons. Now, notice I didn't say it entrepreneurial um, <laughs> or, or starting my business. And I think there is a lot of people that I respected that told me, you don't need an MBA to raise money. You don't need an MBA to uh, start your own business. You know, if you're truly entrepreneurial, like, you know, you don't need that. And, um, and, and, and they couldn't be further from the truth. I'm not saying that once again, you need an MBA to start your own business. I'm, I'm not saying that. 
But what I am saying is that they certainly downplayed the resources that I would get from HBS in this case that would help me propel Camino to what it is today. And just to give you one data point amongst many to validate that point, uh, 80% of my seed capital came from either Harvard alums or people that were introduced to me by Harvard alums. Once again, this was my (laughs) crutch. For others, it can be getting into Y Combinator. For others, it can be you know, a variety of different things, right? It just, for me, this was my crutch and it definitely made the difference, let alone, of course, all the access that I got to professors. I have three professors from HBS that eventually uh, invested in in Camino Financial. You can't invest while you're a student. They have to do it after. Um, uh, But but that eventually invested in me. I mean, come on, I have three Harvard (laughs) that I can call and ask about strategic decisions of the business. I mean, that's just crazy awesome. And um, yeah. and, and so th- those are just like two examples. Um, th- there are many more how, uh, in my mind, HBS was critical to starting a business, at least for community financial. Yeah, and I just want to echo that point that if you're an entrepreneur, people want they love to hate on MBAs for whatever reason. Um, but when I was deciding to get an MBA, I just you know graduated a number of months ago from USC. It was the same type of thing. I was considering entrepreneurial paths and just doing something different. And for me, the MBA was all about that network and that those resources that I did not have before the MBA. And so USC gave me that exact thing of professors you can call on that can help you out. Uh, your network of people through through the MBA and, and even just that validation of having that, where then that gives you access, like you mentioned. And I've had that with the Just Go Grind podcast repeatedly, again and again and again. So many guests have come through USC or come through USC-affiliated people or people come on because of like the validation of, of the MBA behind the name. And so I just want to echo that point for people who are considering it. For me, at least, it was helpful. It seems like it was obviously very helpful for you. And, and going back to that point in your journey then, we were just getting started with Camino. During the MBA at Harvard, how did it come about you and your brother deciding, hey, let's let's start Community Financial? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I, I think I already had an idea to start something at, at, while I was in business school. Once again, I didn't go to business school because I wanted to start a company, but I did have a good idea of what I wanted to start <laughs> while I was yeah. in business school, <laughs> just to clarify. Yes. And so um, it wasn't a light bulb moment. Um, This idea has been something that Kenny and I had been thinking about for a very long time. Uh, I think business school has a very interesting way of making you second guess every decision, career decision you've ever made and what you want to do in the first six months or even the full two years. Um, And so, so I certainly went through that process and I thought that was a healthy process because you know you want to you want to think outside of the box this is a real great opportunity to hit the reset button and rethink uh, and yet throughout that process it only reinforced my conviction to build a platform that would help latino businesses access affordable capital um, and so you it so it was good that that was like part 1 i think Part two, which was very interesting, was um, I really, you know, Kenny and I were thinking about this, but he was going through his outside of the box thinking period much longer than I did. 
In fact, uh, <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to start a business within the first six months. He wasn't sure until like month 14, 15 into the MBA experience. Uh, so, so there was a good gap in which I really had to run with it. Um, and, uh, and then find a way to trick my brother back into plan. <laughs> and so what I did, and I, and I strongly encourage every MBA to do this that wants to start a business is leverage one, of course, the resources while you're at school. Um, and then two, really take that summer in, um, that summer between your first and your second year to, take risks with your career in this case, my case, starting a company. Um, and then once you've made that decision, hopefully relatively early on into your first year, you can plan for that so that by the time you get to your summer, you're not going in with nothing. In fact, I use the second semester at HBS to really plan for my summer. And so by the time I got to my summer, um, I really had a roadmap to take advantage and in acknowledging I wasn't going to get paid. I wasn't going to pay myself. Right. I was, and, and, and sometimes I do find this being a common mistake amongst MBAs where they, they're like, oh yeah, but I want to get paid something. Right. And it's like, no, forget about that. <laughs> that doesn't matter. This is the opportunities you not taking risks during this summer are like much higher than you getting paid something. And, and, and also you can leverage the school's resources and potentially get a stipend or something from the school. And so, um, and so I went in with that attitude, refined what would become the investment thesis of, of Camino Financial. And then what was really cool is like the last two weeks of the summer, I decided to go on my on a vacation with my wife for my um, 30th birthday. And, um, and I didn't take Kenny with me, recognizing that we have the same birthday, but believe it or not, my wife and I have the same birthday too. So like all three of us have the same birthday. Um, and, um, and so I'm like, hey, Kenny, you know what? I have some traction. Here's like a brief on what I've done so far. And by the way, we spent the whole summer not talking about our respective experiences. Like we really gave ourselves the space to like not influence each other's decisions. But then that last <laughs> week I was like, Kenny, you know, do me a favor, just like run with this for the next two weeks. And when I get back, let's like compare notes and tell me what you think. And when I got back, he's like, dude, I'm convinced I'm going to do this. Sign me up. And and, uh, and, and that was so cool. And I think that was when the, the company became real, when you, you find a partner to join you in that journey. And, um, and so, you know, the rest is history in terms of like you know, <laughs> getting it off the ground and, and, and starting it. But it, that was the pivotal point where it became real. Yeah. And to that point, I also did not take a summer internship uh, during my time at USC. And I think it's important you mentioned that like, if you are thinking about starting something, you can prep for that during the MBA, like that second semester, especially first semester is just crazy. But that second semester, especially then prepare for it. So then you can hit the ground running when you have, you know, the 12 weeks or whatever it is of time. And one thing I want to uh, dig into a little bit, when you, when you showed Kenny, you had like two weeks left in the summer. You mentioned you had some traction. Like, what did you have in place, or what did you have kind of organized by that point when you showed him? Yeah, so we 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 closed our first loan, which is a very big deal. Yeah, uh, and um, someone told me this early on. Um, a CEO of a 
of a publicly traded small business lender and um, he's like, getting your first 10 loans is going to be the hardest thing you're going to do at this company. Um, and, um, and so I, that stuck with me. And it took us a year to get our first 10 loans, just so you know. And we, we took oh, wow. hundreds of loans a month, right? So like, it's a very humbling experience. <laughs> Only ten small deals, right? Like just ten, yeah, just ten. <laughs> and um, but it, it's all about earning the trust, and so so I think that was what I had set out for Kenny, and it wasn't much. I mean, once again, just a deal. Um, and <laughs> I I, I don't want to make it sound uh, more exciting than that, but that in and of itself was very exciting. Oh my God. Yes. To have validation. Like you've done it. You've done one. Like what was that first deal too? Take me through that. Oh, I love the that origin story. So cool. Um, oh, this is a good story. So, so I remember, so I used to door knock. Um, I literally door knock. And just to give you a sense, I mean, before this reminder, I was an investment in your private equity. I right. sat on as a board observer on three companies that were generating anywhere between 50 to hundred million dollars in revenue, um, suit tie kind of guy. Right. Yeah. Here I was in like my khakis, a polo shirt, um, you know, going to, you know, low to moderate income neighborhoods and door knocking or effectively, uh, you know, going on the field and like, going to an auto repair shop and having a flyer that I created. I mean, and getting rejected so many times in the, <laughs> uh, it was a very humbling experience, but you know, something that now I remind everybody about. And so, so that's just to give you a bit of context. Um, and then that subsequently led to some networking events that I would go to. And then I got a lead in from, uh, someone that was at that networking event that there's this security company that's looking for capital. And so, um, and so I'm like, all right, cool. He's like, so they gave me his number and, uh, and I called him and I'm like, Hey, how are you? My name is Sean. This is who I am. I hear you're, you're, you're evaluating capital options. would love to discuss with you. He's like, well, tell me a little bit about what those options are. I'm like, I told him click kind of, we ended up, I'll, I'll get back to you. I'm like, great. Now the only issue was at that point in time, uh, I was, so I was between New York and LA, um, you know, with do, having a long distance relationship with my wife. And so, yeah. so like, you know, I, I needed to go back to New York two days later. And so funny enough, what ends up happening is I'm on my way back to New York. I'm at LAX. My phone rings. It's a follow up from the prospective client. He calls me and he says, look, Sean, I've put something into what you told me. Um, I'm definitely interested, but I don't deal with anyone unless I meet them in person. So when mm. my office and meet me in person and I was like, uh, <laughs> this is a Friday, right? Yeah, fine. And, yeah. and I already had planned to stay in New York and work from New York for the next two to three weeks. And, um, and he, I'm like, uh, how does Monday sound to you? And he's like, Monday works. All right, I'll see you on Monday at like 1 p.m. Sure, great. Click, call my wife, say, hey, I'm gonna fly into New York for the weekend, but I'm on the first flight out um, in the in the morning or the last flight on Sunday. And uh, 
and and because I need to go meet with this person, spend all this money on a flight ticket uh, to meet with this person with the potential to close my first deal. <laughs> I love it. And dude, we closed the deal. It was so cool. And uh, and obviously, like the unit economics of that deal were terrible. If you factor in the flight back from uh, you know from New York to LA, uh, but it was it was awesome. It was very rewarding. And um, and and just once again, now we, we don't meet with people directly. Um, we've We've done. We've created a great digital first, digital only brand. That so we get a lot of leads now coming in, and we would still give them the human touch online, um, but but not in person. And like I said, um, we close you know hundreds of loans a month now. And with that first loan too, where was the capital for that? Was that like from your your own kind of savings, or how did that go for for that side? Yeah, great question. So. So lending businesses are very tricky to get started because it takes money to validate your business. And um, and so what we did is we started as a broker, effectively, um, brokering loans. And really, and, and it was a great process for us to identify if the products in the market had a fit with the Latinx business market, right? Yeah. And, and, and be, or were there gaps? And then if there were gaps and were we uniquely positioned to fill them? And so we started as a broker and it enabled us to learn a lot about, you know, what bank and non-bank loan products are in the market. And then from there, eventually it would devise our plan to start lending directly. And so, and then I'm starting to lend directly. I mean, now, Closing those first 10 deals were hard. What was much harder was basically getting access to capital at scale to grow our business with good economics for all parties considered. Um, And so when you're starting now, you decided, okay, now I'm going to start lending. That's even a lot less efficient than brokering um, because there's like a catch 22, right? Which is, Hey, okay. I'm, I think you're onto something, but (laughs) credit, I'm not going to be the first one to bet on your credit thesis. I want to see performance before I put money into this. You're like, well, uh, I need money to establish credit performance. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, what do I do? And so we had already, um, uh, gotten some seed capital, $2 million. Uh, and so basically we put of those $2 million, um, we put $1 million to work <laughs> Wow! and, uh, and they were like, Hey, we're out of business in six months. If this doesn't work, if they don't pay us back. Um, but if they do, then we have a business model and that's effectively what we did. And of course, ac- investing equity in loans is incredibly expensive, um, but you know it was our only option and uh and thank god it worked but it was a very painful process going from one million to a hundred million dollar facility was incredibly painful and and going to that point of raising that seed capital was that during hbs or after hbs then no at that point we had graduated uh and so um we graduated in 2015 so the, the so the summer that i got my first loan was the summer of 2014 um, okay. As I mentioned, it took a year between 2014 and 2015 to close 
our tenth loan, right. um, and and uh, and then we use that as a sliver of traction um, to effectively raise our pre-seed um, capital of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And by the way, I always tell this to people. Some people are like, "Oh, I'm a little like ashamed of showing like traction numbers, or it's too early to show any traction numbers in a pitch," right? I can tell you right now that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, uh, I can like, there's no, there's no such thing as too little or too small um, uh, a pool of traction metrics to show to any set of investors at your, and especially at the pre-seed stage. Why? Because it shows you that you've been thoughtful about how to go to market. You 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 went through the grind of getting those first ten loans before you put a <laughs> exactly. dollar in outside investment into your business, right? Um, which was very hard. It took us literally a year, um, and uh, and so and and we had something to to prove for that. And then of course, you know, we kept on brokering. Just to be clear, so by the time we raised the two million, um, we had already brokered something around. $7 million in small business loans. And then that's when we decided to start lending directly. And of course, of the $2 million in equity that we raised, we put a million dollars to work on the direct lending piece. And with that, so going back, you you start off with, you're going door to door, you're trying to find these potential people to lend to, potential Latinx business owners to lend to. Then once you get funding, and that's pre-seed at $2 million, how did your, your strategy change on customer acquisition then from that point? Yeah, so so great, great question. Um, and this was a very big moment for us. Uh, so there, so just let me give you a little bit of context around the yeah. typical business owner that we're lending to. Um, so we're talking about 35 to 50 year old, first to second generation immigrant in the United States, Spanish dominant. A very good chunk of them are undocumented, um, high school education at best. Uh, 25% of them don't have credit history. And a lot of them move cash, right? Um, yeah. Versus moving the, 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 their, their cash flow into a bank account, right? Um, they're more cash-based uh, micro-businesses. And so, so I want to give you that context because Many lenders that have been lending into this market for a very long time uh, would tell you that there is no way, one, one they say we don't like lending to this business, <laughs> number one, but then there's a lot of like nonprofits that have been focused on this. So they, they do their best to lend into the market. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they would, they would tell us there is no way that this market is going to transact exclusively online with a lender. No way. Uh, why? Because there's real trust issues with this market, and which is 100% true. That part of what they were telling us was very true. And that physical uh, presence is critical. Um, and, and yes, while online lending was at that point in time already booming, quite frankly, um, uh, it wasn't clear that this segment in the market um, would adopt online lending as aggressively as other demographics had, uh, and so and so th there was a real challenge there, um, because predominantly because of the trust issue, right? 
uh, you know, and I think that stems from a lot of things, right? You know, what country they came from, how the banking system was broken from the countries that they're coming from, uh, potentially, you know, you know the, the education background of, of, of these individuals, et cetera. So, so we are like, you know, we, and we, and we initially we bought into it. We're like, okay, let's go and door knock. And yeah. And, and the problem with that was it's just we couldn't scale the business model efficiently. And so so we're like, let's let's just, you know, our last, let's put a stick on the ground and go digital. And it took a while because you have to build a brand. You have to build a lot of good content. Uh, and But I'm proud to say that we're the largest digital um, uh, lender in the space. And, that, and, I, and I would include if you just measure um, our size in terms of, a digital footprint by organic traffic exclude paid traffic because anyone can pay right yeah um uh we're larger than um than many than any business lender that focus on the latinx market we're even larger than like um a publicly traded one on deck um and just to give you a sense and then we're larger than even some of the our personal um lending peers who we don't compete with, but nonetheless, just to give you a sense. And so we've really done a really good job at building a digital footprint first and yeah. being able to use that to scale our, you know, our, our, our lead funnel. Yeah. And you talk about trust, which is obviously so important, especially with this, with this market then. How did you go about building the brand, building the digital presence? Because it's, it, that was what you know, you just mentioned allowed you to do this. Like, how did you go about building that out to then establish trust? Yeah. So, um, we tried a little bit of everything. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to embarrass myself by, by sharing this with you, but I think it, it, it <laughs> go to show the extreme of how much we went to, to learn and, and test what would and wouldn't work. And, um, I started doing these online workshops on, on YouTube and uh, and I would dress up as Batman, as Superman, as the Easter Bunny. Literally, the Easter Bunny would make up, make a noise, and you're like, "Whoa!" Like, <laughs> seriously, like that builds trust. Believe it or not, knows, it builds trust. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, they they like when people are smart but open to make a fool of themselves to build trust. <laughs> uh, I think we've professionalized my image a lot more since then. Um, uh, but there have been requests for me to put my bat suit on again uh we'll see if that ever happens oh um, but... i'll be watching for it sean <laughs> <laughs> but um but i i've hung my cape for some time now um but um you know so but but that that was a part of the iteration um ultimately where we landed on though uh just to give you a sense of where we ended up landing is is content um, content is key. You know this. I mean, you're hosting yeah. your podcast. You know how powerful content is, and, um, and 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 you know how hard it is to get content where it needs to be. And it's just yeah. not just a function of designing great content. It's a function of finding ways, efficient ways to distribute that content. And then the third one is establishing authority that you're better at creating this content better than anyone else. And so, so on that third piece, we've been able to really hone in on that with a very good PR strategy. Um, you know, I'm now a Forbes contributor. Um, just in the last two weeks, we've been featured on NBC, Reuters, and the Wall Street Journal. 
um, um, what's being featured. We've actually uh, created this uh, Latinx small business survey that helps uh, people in the acad- in academia and in media get a strong pulse on the Latinx uh, on the health of Latinx businesses. Um, and we describe this market, Latinx market in, in broader terms as a new mainstream economy, given its size and growth. And, uh, and so, and, and just making sure it's on people's radars. If we turn our backs to the Latinx community or, or um, the black community, we're not doing ourselves any favors in accelerating a recovery, you know, and this was right. true pre COVID because by the way, like, it still felt like a recession for black and brown people before COVID, by the way. Um, Just to be clear, COVID, I think, amplified the realities of our situation, but it was still screwed up before. Um, And and I think now we need to start seeing um, these communities as part of the solution. And And so putting that research out there really gets our authority element up, and, and we're very proud about it. Yeah, and going back to the COVID situation, I mean, how have you managed that? How have you kind of adjusted for that to be able to help people during this time? Yeah, so so the the, the framework I would give you to just help you think about how we're framing our, our strategy around COVID is there's the three R's, right? There's the, the relief phase, the recovery phase, and the reinvention phase. Okay. Um, as I think about relief, I'm thinking about um, two things in particular. One, I'm thinking about, hey, we're actively managing a large loan portfolio, a portfolio that needs relief, um, payment relief, modifications. Um, and so we've, we've um, given that relief to a very large portion of our portfolio. And we do it happily because we know that we need to be um, they're next to our members now more than ever. And if they can't make payments because their doors are closed, we need to not only acknowledge that, but give them the relief they need on the loan so that they can, they can survive and then eventually thrive. Yeah. Um, the second element of it is really, you know, giving them access to relief funds. And what, and I qualify relief funds as funds that it's pretty much free money. Um, yeah. Uh, so PPP being a clear example of free money, it's a forgivable loan. Um, and and so we at Camino Financial are not well positioned to give PPP for a variety of reasons. And we we knew that. We we are like, we not we need to stay in our lane. But what we're really good at is creating content that educates our members more, our, our, our better positions our members to access PPP. So while the penetration of PPP funding in black and brown communities has been abysmally low compared to where it needs to be and where yeah. where um, other bench uh, what other demographics are benchmarking, you know our PPP penetration is four times larger than that of uh, the broader um, uh, you know broader market benchmarks for the Latinx market, and so we know that content actually does move the needle and giving our members the relief they need, in this case, indirectly, uh, because we're not offering the PPP ourselves. The second R is recovery. And so 
hopefully, I was hoping we were again during the recovery phase in July. Clearly, <laughs> I hope it's September, end of August, September. And it looks like that based on the credit performance metrics that I'm seeing, by the way. Um, but, you know, we are, we need to now then, this is where Camino Financial and the government and other private investors can step up and say, all right, we need to start lending again because businesses do want to recover and they want to grow, right? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and we, and, and I think a loan is appropriate. It's not going to be free money. It's going to be a loan with an interest rate. Uh, however, what we need to do is potentially give, you know, be, get comfortable generating um, or get, get, get creative is a better way of how we structure the debt investment vehicles, right? Can we, you know, get some government subsidies so that we can lower the interest rate relative to what they would be in normal times, right? Can we bring philanthropists into the mix? Uh, can Camino Financial do something on our end to manage our margins a bit more efficiently so we can pass those savings to um, our members? Um, and so, and so that's that's the. Remember, I told you PPP was in our lane, right? Right. This is our lane. This is where Camino Financial needs to be at the forefront. Um, you know, in many ways, us trying to do PPP directly would have been a distraction to, I think, will be a long path to recovery for a lot of these businesses. And I wanted to be at the forefront of, 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 of figuring out an, a response to how can we create a capital structure that's exciting and helps businesses recover. And so I'm happy to share with you that um, about two weeks ago, we announced we're the first participant of a broader uh, FinTech COVID response initiative um, where we're bringing in philanthropists and private investor capital to the mix so that we can you know, devise loan products that are more affordable and designed for recovery. And so we're starting that pilot um, out of Colorado. Um, Colorado admittedly is a, is a small market for yeah. us. Um, uh, but, but, you know, our hope is to expand that nationally. And so, so while I don't expect you know, this pilot to be massive in scale, um, I think it certainly plants a seed for a very scalable response by the fintech industry. And we, we in particular, as part of this broader initiative, will be focused on um, underbank Latinx businesses and in particular, undocumented immigrants. Right. And one of the things we haven't really taken much of a dive into yet is what I want to go into is with these loans, I'm curious as to like, what type of loan amounts are these? What types of things are these typically being used for for businesses? If you have anything on that, and especially for you know th thinking of Latinx businesses listening or other entrepreneurs who want to offer this type of thing, maybe different communities, whatever. Like I'm curious on the loans themselves, exactly that too. Yeah. So, um, so the loans themselves are used pretty much for working capital. Yeah. Um, it's a combination of growth and working capital. The average size of our loans about fifteen thousand dollars. Um, it's a two-year term, monthly payment, no prepayment penalty, very plain vanilla loan. And, and we, we, we're a big believer. Credit should be simple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You get in trouble when you make, it, you make it overly complicated, especially for the borrower. Um, and then we're able to uh, underwrite these loans such that are, and price these loans such that the monthly payment to a borrower is roughly 45% less than what it would be 
uh, compared to a loan that you would get, for instance, at PayPal or OnDeck. And so, so we're able to, to, to do that. Um, we don't do a lot of like, we don't do startup loans, just to be clear. Yeah. Um, we are, we, you know, we're lending to, and to answer your point on industries, um, you know, transportation uh, people that are in the construction business, um, uh, retail, restaurants, and broadly defined professional services, whether you're a janitor or a landscaper. Um, that's, that's what we do very well. And we do it very well for the really small micro businesses. And it's very important to distinguish a micro business from a small business. Um, I mean, you saw that in PPP, right? Like, right. especially the first part of PPP, where clearly it was going to what, yes, maybe the SBA defines as a small business, but that could go up to a business that is a publicly traded company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you had like Shake Shack getting PPP and everything. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so um, what we need to distinguish and, and design around micro businesses. And, you know, part of me, not part of me, Part of, I, I recognize that that's what's been broken. Um, and, and I, by the way, PPP was very well intentioned. I'm not trying to like dig on the SBA to dig on the SBA. They moved more money in order of magnitudes that were 50 times more than what they had done in the past over that period of time. Um, so, and it, and it saved a lot of jobs. I, let me be very right. Yeah. Um, but, but it still wasn't designed with a bottoms up approach of helping micro businesses. And we all know that by and large, micro businesses are more likely to be black and brown, period. Right. Um, and so, you know, we need to really rethink how we design for this community. Um, and it's not easy. I can tell you that much. And it does take <laughs> go. I mean, it doesn't help that you're moving cash only. You're not. <laughs> certainly not. Certainly not, Sean. <laughs> and so, and so it, it's not easy. I, I'm, I'm the first to recognize that, too. Yeah. And Sean, you started this, this business as an idea. It's you. You had the time. You had some, uh, some little bit of time to grow this and kind of get traction. You convinced your twin brother, Kenny, to come on board. So it's the two of you. But now you're a team of over 50 people. You've raised $125 million plus in debt and equity. How did you grow the team? And how has this business evolved from those early days to, to now? Yeah. So, well, in many ways, we're definitely still a startup. Um, they're, they're like one of my professors, investor, Jeff Busking, he, um, uh, he, he wrote this great book, um, called, um, entering startup land. Um, uh, and, uh, he, there, there's another one by the founder of, um, I'm blanking out on his name that has a similar name, so not to be confused with that, but <laughs> you know, he writes in his book is that there's like three phases of a startup, right? Um, there is, you know, the phase where you are in like the jungle, right? Where <laughs> you are just like hacking away, you have no sense of direction, right? Yeah. Of what the heck, uh, uh, you know, where, where you're going, right? And then the 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 second phase is call it like you're in the dirt road. Um, where it's still bumpy, but you kind of have direction on where you're going. Um, and then you have then the highway. It's a perfectly paved, but very stringent path, right? Um, but it's optimal. It's optimized for speed. Yeah. Right? 
And so to answer your question, um, uh, there is a, a path to, so we are, I would qualify as we're transitioning from, we definitely transitioned away from the jungle and we're in the dirt road path. Um, and, and so, and the people that, um, you know, there are people that are better suited for the jungle than they are for the dirt road path. And there's, there's also people that are better suited for the highway than they are for the dirt road. And so it's really important that as you build your team um, to be able to distinguish, right, um, uh, the difference between someone that's suited for one stage of the startup versus another. Uh, that's, I think that's number one. I, and, and I think that was critical to our, our ability to build our team. Um, the, the second thing that I would say is critically important that like the first 10 to 30 people you hire are going to be like diehards waving <laughs> and, and representing the communal culture, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we call it, it's a familia culture for us. We have very clear values um uh you know that we abbreviate in in rare you know you need to be uh, resourceful uh you need to be analytical you need to be reliable and you need to be empathetic right like like it's very clear um what type of people we're looking for and we want those people to demonstrate uh those values every day and so i think i think once you get the foundation right on culture then it becomes a little bit of a self-propelling um, a flywheel, and uh, and so and so that that's that's the critical piece. And um, one hire that we probably made later, uh, too late into the game, and if I had to go back, I would have hired this person very early on. Um, was our our people and talent manager, someone that is focused on HR very early in the process. I think Kenny and I have always had a knack for you know people, <laughs> but <laughs> having someone that's a dedicated resource to that. Um, is important because you, what you realize is you go from 20 to, to 50 very fast, right? Um, and so just managing through that has been, you know, a, a journey and, and you're going to make mistakes along the way. And so, you know, and those mistakes can be very expensive. So having that people and talent or HR person there early on will be critically important. Sean, you have this company that started obviously from, from from nothing and from from literally nothing, and you also have this work ethic that your your mom basically told you to suck it up when you were doing investment banking, and you're used to working those hours and running this company. I'm really curious, how do you recharge or step away from work? Yeah, so um, obviously family is important, uh, and so um, finding time to be with my family. I mean. Look, one big silver lining in all this COVID stuff is that I get to work from remotely from home, which, by the way, has worked beautifully for Camino. Great. Um, and uh, and I have a newborn daughter. Ooh, congrats. Um, yeah, thank you very much. And I get to spend time with her. I literally, you know, I go up for lunch and get, be able to hold her, change her, hang out with her, be a dad. And that is incredibly uh calming for me uh and so i think that's that's one um i i obviously exercise is important um and so i'm i run about 20 miles a week um Pam. and then and then the, the 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 third thing so i don't meditate and i know that's a common one um 
I don't meditate, but what I do do is um, I've gotten really into gardening. Um, and that has been a very calming pastime for me. And so between those three things, um, I, I don't know if you consider this work or not, but obviously read everything under the sun um, is critically important. Uh, and I found Audible to be great because um, whether it helps with my running or not, I do listen to Audible as I'm running. Um, yes. That's been very helpful for me because I know some people are like, oh, well, that's not really reading. I'm like, no, it is for oh, me. Oh, it's definitely reading, yeah. Um, and uh, and I, so I love Audible. Um, Any suggestions on books? Oh, uh, man, that's such a good question. All right, well, we talked about entering startup land. I think that's really important, yep. um, uh, if, especially if you're planning to join. But also at the same time, I actually think it's really helpful um, if you're a CEO of a company and helping you frame, um, you know, what type of people to hire at different points in time. Uh, I, I, I'm right now reading um, Clayton Christensen's How Will You Measure Your Life? It's very good. Um, I love um, uh, Bob Iger's book, The Right of a Lifetime. Um, yeah, these are like top of my head books that I'm reading, that, I, that I've read that I really like. Um, and then there's, oh, the, a, another one is uh, um, uh, Measure What Matters by John Doerr. Um, he really goes into OKRs. I mean, you could probably get away with like, his TED talk, but I, I, I liked reading the book and getting into it. I mean, we religiously apply OKRs. I was bought into it. It's not an easy uh, objectives and key results. Um, it's you, It requires a lot of conviction from the top to implement it and be patient with the time frame it takes to implement properly. But once implemented properly, it's very good. So I, I, I recommend the read. That's great. There's so many great books out there. And I love hearing suggestions from from people to add to my library. And you know, there's you know, Audible helps you consume way more. I'm definitely a fan. I also very weirdly run like about 20 miles a week, which is kind of weird. The same exact thing with Audible. Um, and you mentioned gardening, though. How did you get into gardening? Oh, th- that was totally um, COVID related. So um, I I have like a little teeny tiny like backyard i have a town home with like a teeny tiny backyard in the back and uh you know i i basically gutted it and you know created a little garden there and it was just and as i did it it was just like at first it was just more like all the optics of like not having things look weird in the back and then (laughs) um and then really like you know realizing in the process that wow this is really cool and and i don't consider myself like a handyman or anything like that but you know i i guess because i have no choice but to be handy in the absence of having people come here uh i started doing the work and really loved the gardening piece uh and so that's really kind of happened by accident but i found it very (laughs) therapeutic um oh one thing i didn't say and this kind of goes into another thing that i love doing um because it's cooking. I love cooking. I cook every, every day. And uh, and now I get to use stuff from the garden. Yep, full circle. Cooking, <laughs> like, oh, man, that is awesome. <laughs> uh, what's, what's your go-to right now? Go-to meal you're cooking. Oh, man. I, you know what? It's, it's not about go-tos for me. It's more about, like, what are the basics that I do really well? And then I can, I can build on the basics, right? So, like, I'm really good at the grill. 
Um, mm. uh, my pollo asado is the best that I've ever had, and, uh, <laughs> and I know that doesn't sound very humble. Humble brag, yeah. <laughs> but but um, but it, it really is good. I, so I, I I'm really into grilling, um, keeping you know grilling vegetables, um, soups, lentils, good quinoa. Uh, you know, different. Now I'm getting into salsas um uh and roasting different types of uh chilies and so forth and blending it and getting the right balance for the salsa that i'm looking for so that's kind of like the theme but i'm but i am all about keeping it simple getting your basics right and then embellishing it with some creativity i love it i love it love it love it and it's so fun uh to have that to be able to do some different things with cooking i'm not a huge cook but i do i have like, i bought like tim ferris's book a while ago like for our chef and just to have try different things out with that has, has been fun in the past and and sean this has been a lot of fun to ch chat with you where can people go to learn more about camino financial and all you're doing yeah so on camino financial you can always stop by my office www.caminofinancial.com and uh, and then follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Sean D. Salas. Um, uh, you, it's I'm I'm pretty active on both, uh, and and very excited to. And if people want to see pictures of my family and my baby, you can also follow me on Instagram. <laughs> but <laughs> but more from a professional perspective, follow me there. And I also host my own podcast. Uh, it's called Fundamental Fairness. It's a podcast about financial inclusion from the lens of entrepreneurs, policymakers, and investors. And uh, I get to uh, speak to many game changer uh, individuals that are really promoting um, for a more inclusive new normal. And, uh, and, and, and fundamental fairness is available on most uh, major podcast platforms. So feel free to subscribe and listen in. Awesome. I'll be sure to link all that up in the show notes. Just go grind.com slash podcast. Sean, thank you for coming on the show today. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen. The Weekly Grind, which is my weekly newsletter, comes out every single Friday. You can find it at justgogrind.com slash newsletter. This is filled with tips, tools, and strategies for growing your business. If you want to know how to launch a business, how to grow it, how to get it off the ground, find employees, all these different things. There's a few tips, tools, and strategies every single week I deliver right to you. Justgogrind.com slash newsletter. Check it out. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you in the next episode.